is it safe to say you subscribe to the multiverse? I'd say it a little softer than that. I'd say that one of the respected interpretations of modern quantum theory mm. is that there are multiple universes that result from splitting of one universe. Welcome to the Paco's Place podcast. Rejuvenate your smile with Dr. Lourdes Kaplong's comprehensive range of dental solutions. Along with general dentistry, Dr. Kaplong specializes in cosmetic dentistry, including teeth whitening, bonding, dental veneers, and surgical crowns. Whether it's urgent care or preventive treatment, she'll take care of you and your smile. To schedule an appointment, call the clinic at area code 323-257-7582. Exciting news, guys. Our summer flight giveaway is officially here and we are thrilled to offer you the chance to win one of 20 free flights. Whether you want to surprise your loved ones or treat yourself to a spontaneous getaway, this giveaway is perfect for you. Participating is easy. Simply download the Sendwave app and register. Make sure to enter promo code PACO if this is your first time sending. From August 11 to September 8, 2023, send $300 or more using Sendwave and you'll automatically be entered into the draw for a chance to win. But wait, there's more. To boost your chances of winning for every additional $100 you send, you'll earn an extra entry into the giveaway. So the more you send, the higher your chances of winning a free flight. Don't miss out on this fantastic opportunity to send money with love and potentially win a memorable flight experience. Download the Sandwave app, enter the giveaway, and get ready to embark on an incredible journey. But right now, let's go for an incredible podcast. And the podcast will begin in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, a big round of applause. Live at Pockets Place, Dr. Randy Charlock. How are you, Doc? Fantastic. I had a great lunch. Oh, my Thank God, you. yeah. I, I've, been, I've been wanting to have this conversation because during lunch, I had to finish the food just so that I don't do the podcast at the restaurant. We could have started early. You know? I, I, I know, I know. <laughs> but, 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 Doc, okay, you're an oncologist. Not only that. You have another practice. What is it? So I'm a practitioner of voodoo. By day, By I have a machine that sends an invisible ray of x-rays into patients' bodies mm. to make cancer go away. Yes. But then at night, my other voodoo is I'm a practitioner of psychedelic medicine. So let's, let's talk about your day job first, your day practice. Why did you want to specialize in beating cancer? Well, in radiation in, in particular, radiation. yeah. So I went to medical school thinking that I would be a pediatric oncologist. Um, the reason oncology appealed to me is I like fixing things. And in most of medicine, a lot of patients don't realize this, but most doctors don't fix anything. If you have high blood pressure, we give you a pill to control your blood pressure, not fix the problem. If you have diabetes, we manage your blood sugar. We don't right. fix it. But in oncology, you make cancer go away. And I realized that treating kids was not quite my thing because it's hard to interact with them. You know, an infant is its more like veterinary medicine. But I, I really like talking to people about what's going on. And, and radiation oncology is a perfect fusion of my interest in medicine, my interest in people, and my interest in physics. 
Yeah, I'm very, very interested in physics. And so that, that my job is a perfect combination of those things. How long have you been practicing? Well, I got out of medical school in 95 and I started my radiation oncology residency in 96. So what's that, 28 so, years? Something the reason like why I'm asking, so oncology, fixing things, not just giving them a fix, but actually eradicating whatever it is that they have. So it's it's a battle. It's a every every patient is you getting in the ring, hoping to win, wanting to win, right? Technology 1995, 1996 isn't like what we have now. What's the difference between now and when you started? Now would be 2023 when we're doing this taping, but what's the difference now as opposed to decades ago? Yeah, that's a great question. It's almost like I planted you with that, but for the audience, <laughs> I didn't. Um, <laughs> well, the reason it's a, it's a great plant question is because there was an enormous revolution in technology in the field of radiation oncology that happened right around the year 2000 to 2002. And in when I was in medical school and when I was a resident, our technologies in terms of aiming where the beam went mm. was pretty rudimentary and our technology to shape the cloud of radioactive energy that goes inside of a patient right. was fairly rudimentary. But now... Can you explain that further? Like, Is that more like one is to one? Point well, it here. let's just say you have a lung cancer. Yeah. Okay? In the olden days, I would basically take an x-ray picture and then I'd take a literally a wax crayon and I would draw on that x-ray picture, picture the shape of a lead block that went into the machine so that the only amount of radiation that came out of the machine was a hole in this lead block that conformed to the shape of your tumor uh, and there'd be a beam from the front and a beam from the back and that's really the extent of, of right, what we did right but now what we can do is and, and the technology is way too advanced to talk about on the podcast but we now have the ability to shape a cloud of radiation that goes inside of a patient's body that perfectly conforms to the shape of that tumor and leaves very little radiation deposited elsewhere. Ooh. And that allowed us to very safely escalate the doses yeah. that a patient can tolerate. Mm. And so we're killing a lot more cancer than we did 25 years ago with a lot less toxicity. And so the, wow. yeah, it, it, it's just an incredible leap in technology that happened. And the, another thing that happened is we can now aim the radiation beam much more precisely because a, a tumor can move around and, yeah. and daily positioning of a patient isn't always precise. Yes. But now we have the ability to look inside of a patient every single day and say, where is this tumor today? <laughs> and then shift the x-ray beam because in the old days we had to, create x-ray beams that were bigger than the target area for the margin of error to, exactly yeah. to accom accommodate for any positioning mm. uncertainty yes but that greater x-ray beam size caused a lot more collateral damage yes and it also limited the dose that we could safely deliver because of the collateral damage exactly. it may cost right exactly but now because the f the x-ray beam is smaller there's much less collateral damage and so the patient tolerates the treatment better but we can also drive the dose higher and cure more people. Speaking of cure more people, a while ago while we were having lunch and my little eight-year-old daughter had a nice conversation. The, we were starting with COVID and then she goes, does COVID still exist, right? That's what she said. And your answer was, well, it, right now it's like the flu. 
um, that's paraphrasing, but that's very optimistic because I lost my mom to cancer and my wish is for someone like you to say that in the future that, ah, cancer, you'll be well tomorrow. Fortunately, we do have friends who've had cancer and now they're all in remission, a decade in remission, two decades in remission. But what's your take on it? How optimistic are you if you even are? Well, your your question's getting in an age-old question that I hear a lot, which is, when are we going to cure cancer? We are curing cancer. And, you know, that's the reality. It's like COVID, right? Yeah. There, there are still some people that get COVID and they get sick, but most people get COVID and they just get over it. Amen. Um, will there ever be a day that nobody dies from influenza and nobody dies from COVID? Probably not. Yes. Will there ever be a day where nobody dies from cancer? Probably not. Amen. But we're making progress decade by decade, you know, we're ch slowly chipping away. And it's not just at treating cancer, but we're also learning how to screen for cancers mm. and, and help prevent cancers. I see. Now, with regard to um, seeing a patient as a doctor, and I remember asking my, my uncle, how do you detach yourself? Because I'm an empath. And so I know that it's probably going to be hard for me to be in, in that field, but but how do you communicate with patients? Like you've seen patients, you probably know the pro propensity for them to survive or not survive. How do you detach or attach yourself to, to patients on a human level? Well, so there's two questions in there. Like how do I communicate with patients and how do I detach? And I, I think what you're asking by detach is how do I have their fear and trauma not stick to me yes right um well to answer the second question um is a great question and Thank you. it's difficult for me to put my answer into words but the very best description that i found to explain to people when they ask me this question is that i f imagine myself as like a net such that their traumatic or fear or anger can fly through me mm. and there really isn't any substrate for that to stick on me. So I don't necessarily need to, you know, go vent after work or, um, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily have a practice that helps me de-stress because the stress never gets stuck on me. If that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. And then the first question of how do I communicate yes. with people? Um, I just try to have a really natural conversation without using any doctor language because most people want to be talked to in language that they understand. You know what? Just by you talking to me, I'm already having some, <laughs> some chest pain going, oh my God. I mean, just the communication. It's like, say, you're fired for life or whatever. You know what I mean? No, it's I like, don't know what you mean. It's like it's like it's like you're you're an HR for for my life. Like uh, I'm letting you go soon. <laughs> <laughs> Remember when 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 someone goes to HR and and are about to let go be let go, mm -hmm. it's hard for that HR person to actually fire a person. Are you one of the doctors that well, will you, actually? You've, you've been meeting much nicer HR people than I have in my life. Uh, Most but, of the HR people I know are like they're terminators. They're like legit robots. Exactly. But are you? Are, have you encountered um, an an instance in your practice where you actually had to tell somebody that they are termin terminally ill? 
Sure, I'm an oncologist. Exactly. I mean, right? I, my, my job is to go into the octagon <sighs> every day and have a no rules fight with the Grim Reaper. That's that's what the, I want to talk about. That, that's the way I imagine my job. Is take us, fight. take us there, take us there to that octagon where you have to do that, and wish you didn't have to do that or say that to somebody. Well, here's this. I don't know if this is exactly answering your question, but I can tell you an anecdote of the way I've evolved my communication style as I've matured. I used to think, well, I still think it's inc very important to be open and honest with patients because patients have this bullshit detector. You know, if you're, if you're not being honest or forthright with them, they can tell that and they, they can't put their finger on it. Like what's not coming through, but they can sense that there, that there's something out there that they need to know that they're not hearing. <clears throat> so, yeah. Because of that, I, I really value being honest with patients. But when I was younger, I adopted a more straightforward communication style where I would just kind of tell the patient the results of their labs and tests and, and, and what that means. And I realized over time that being kind of blunt and upfront with all the information up front can be so overwhelming to somebody that at best they don't hear it. And at worst, then they overreact and stop fighting because they think the game's up. And so what I've done over time is I've realized that when you have bad news to deliver somebody, it's best to deliver it in pieces. And so like during radiation, I'll meet with my patients once a week. And if you're going to have a six-week course of treatment, that means we're, we're going to meet six times. Yes. And so at the beginning, I can say, you know, this, this, this treatment that you've got is an uphill battle. Just kind of keep it that's, really that's general it. Yes. like that. And then the next time we'll, I'll say, well, let me tell you about your MRI and, and tell you what features of your MRI makes this an uphill battle. But then by the sixth time we're having that conversation, the patient's well aware that they might not get cured and they can hear that in a manner that, that's much more, it's easier for them to receive it than just have that bowl them over with all that information, including the really bad news up front. So honesty is still there. The brutality is what diminished. Well, it's diffused out. Diffused out, yes. Yeah, spread it out. And um, now, the battles that you feel that you will win, do you overpromise and underdeliver, or do you just overdeliver and underpromise? Like, you know that uh, this is something we're going to beat, but... You don't say that outright that we're going to beat this. It doesn't. No, because that's, that's deceptive, right? right. Like I, I would never, ever tell my patients something that isn't true or give them false hope. Even if you think that uh, the odds are we're going to beat it, you, you still. Well, then I'm honest. And I just say, okay. I'll tell them. I'll say the odds are you're going to beat this. When I'm clear, I'll say that doesn't mean 100%. Right. And, um you know, when you're honest and, and, and forthright like that with patients, they really appreciate it. Right. And even if the news is not something they want to hear, they definitely appreciate the honesty. Now let's um, go to the beginning of everything. The f uh, first principles. Why? Does it, why do we even have cancer? Well, that's not the beginning of everything. Ah. Um. 
Yeah, when you said beginning of everything, first principles, I thought you were talking about, like, why does the universe exist? We're, we're going to go there later. <laughs> Fair enough. Why do people have cancer? Yeah. You know, um, I'm going to get a little woo-woo Please. for you, um, but that's why I'm here. So what I, I have developed through medical school all of the Western vernacular that doctors are supposed to use to talk about why cancer happens. But as I've become 56 years old, I have discovered things about the universe that they don't teach you in medical school. And that tells a completely different story about why cancer happens. So the doctor answer is that there are genetic mutations either inherited from your parents or just through living your life and all your cellular activity just makes mistakes in the genetic programming. And if there's a mistake made in a gene that controls for cell growth, that can lead to a cell growing out of control and that mutates and becomes cancer. And there are environmental factors or, you know, a variety of things that can lead to that. But the other way that I now look at cancer, and I really rarely share this with patients because they don't want to hear it. They want to hear the, the Western medical stuff. But I think that in a very real sense, in, in, a, in a manner that's much deeper than we ever appreciate on a normal daily basis, but in a very real sense, the entire universe is just a flow of energy. Yes. And when that energy sometimes gets dark or um, is not moving in a healthy manner, it's moving into a dark place, that's what can lead to disease, including cancer. And I, I think that they're both accurate and that they're both just different ways of explaining the same thing. Thank you for bringing that up, Doc, because I remember when, when my mom had cancer, when two of my friends had cancer, these are all women, the common denominator aside from, and they had different lifestyles, but the only common denominator were the men in their lives. Mm. The men in their lives were giving them a hard time and they were all martyrs. That's exactly what I'm talking about, right? That, the that's energy. A, that's a heavy energy Very for a person yes. to absorb. Yes. And we are not an infinite reservoir of absorbing negative energy, right? Things can get broken and diseases can happen. And to your, to, your, to your metaphor a while ago, net. Even if you describe yourself as being a net, nets only sift through what can pass through them. There are residues right. that, that are left and eventually they accumulate over time, right? Yeah, that's why you got to clean your net out every day. Exactly, time. right? So now, no, did you know about this before going to your night voodoo practice or your night voodoo practice uh, led you to uncover this um, part of... Uh, that energy had everything or probably something to do with why cancer happened. Yeah. Um, the, the work that I did that led me to become a psychedelic medicine doctor. Yes. Is the same work that taught me about energy and taught me that there is another way to think of the universe other than, everything is made out of particles that started at the big bang. 
that there's literally two ways of perceiving the universe. Can you take us back to your epiphany? I am, I'm very curious what led you to, uh, uh-huh, what, what led you to that? How old were you? Were you a practicing doctor already or were you in med school? Take us back. Well. This is very interesting. Yeah, no, you're. It's, and the only reason why I'm, I'm just learning this like this year in 2023, and we were talking about this like, whatever it is that, you know, I'm just learning now and I'm very, very curious because at some point it has to come to us for us to have clarity of what life is and what our purpose is. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the way the world is designed and the way we're designed as human beings, the w- more specifically, the way our mind is designed, we're designed to believe that the physical reality that we live in is all that there is. And our culture has developed uh, a sense that anything outside of what you can see and perceive is just fantasy or woo-woo or fairy tales or wishful thinking. Um, and you've always questioned that or you, you embraced that at one point in your life? No, I was, I was very much brainwashed by the greater academy of science. I thought anything that, that had to do with something non-physical was just bullshit. It was woo-woo. Right. But I have a completely different perspective now. And so you, you asked where that developed yes. from. And I just want to warn your listeners that this is a story that requires them to kind of put a seatbelt on because it, it, it's really, really mind-blowing. And Blow our minds, Doc. Well, the, the challenge is, is that a handful of people can kind of follow the mind-blowing stuff. But another handful of people are going to be like, mm, that's crazy, and tune, tune out. So I, I apologize if you get um, a few people clicking out of this podcast. But it, it starts when I was in my mid-40s, early 40s, and a bunch of bad things had happened to me in my life. And I was um, sucked into a pretty severe depression. So serious enough that I started wondering if killing myself was the only way to make my pain go away. I was going to see a psychiatrist. I was on a bunch of different psych meds and I had a talk therapist that I saw weekly and nothing was helping me. And a friend of mine said, Hey Randy, why don't you come over my house and I'm going to keep the details private just for my own personal safety. But a friend of mine said, come over to my house and participate in a medicine ritual. And I thought to myself, Ooh, well, <laughs> I, I, I've never done that before. I, and mm. mind you, I was a product of the eighties mm. and I am probably the only kid who believed that commercial with the frying pan and the egg, you know, this is your brain on drugs. Yeah. Remember that? And so I figured I want to be a doctor, so I can't take any drugs. Um, but at the point that I was suicidal, I was like, well, what can I lose? So I went right. over to a friend's house and I participated in a medicine ritual where I didn't have any of the metrics that I now look for as a doctor of psychedelic medicine. I just giggled for like four or five hours, <laughs> maybe six. I giggled so hard that my stomach hurt. But when I woke up the next morning, my depression was completely gone. Like I was totally cured. And I instantly knew that something had shifted inside my brain. I knew it wasn't some temporary thing. I had a different outlook on life. And I stopped taking all my psych meds that day. 
and I called wow. my psychiatrist on Monday and like, thanks for your help. Um, none of it worked. I found something else and I'm fine now. So I'm going to stop your medicine. And I knew exactly what she was going to say. Cause I say this to my cancer right. patients when I gave them Prozac and <laughs> two weeks after their Prozac starts working, they go, I'm fine. I don't need it anymore. And I go, no, it just started working. <laughs> you can't stop. And so this is what this woman said. And I said, no, there was a fundamental shift in my brain chemistry. I don't need this stuff anymore. And that was 14 years ago or so. But then I never, ever thought about going back to these medicines. I didn't really understand what, what they yeah. could offer until I had a patient, a cancer patient that How I saw. How many years with, later? About a year and a half later. Okay. Had a cancer patient and I see my patients undergoing radiation once a week. I think it was on the second week I was about to go in and this patient's girlfriend pulls me aside and says, Dr. Sherlock, I have to tell you, your friend, we'll just call him L to keep him private. Your friend L is a druggie. And I go, okay, tell me about what's going on. She goes, well, once a month, these hippies come over to our house and they take magic mushrooms and MDMA and LSD at the same time. Oh my God. And she just sits there waiting for me to go, okay, let's go in there and give him a lesson. And I just thought about it and I said, that is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, what does this guy know that I Where don't? Where do you, yeah. <laughs> so I walk in there and I go, so I heard about your little, your parties every month. And he goes, parties? No, they're not parties. He said, it's work. I said, what do you mean work? He goes, well, have you ever tried you know, these kind of medicines. And I said, mm, one time. And he said, was it work? I said, no, I just giggled for five hours. And he said, well, look, I promise you this. If you adopt these medicines into a spiritual practice on a regular basis, that you will experience personal growth beyond anything you can imagine. Like exponential kind yeah. of. Oh. Like, well, did, putting your, like, like, Transcending. Tr transcending, yeah. Uh, my whole mindset about what reality is has shifted. Um, but his point was, is that some of the work along the way to get there will be very, very difficult. Ooh. But he said it, it's worth the effort. And so I got more deeply into this personal work. So after that conversation, you had to contemplate about it, right? Or were you like, mm let me just go no you know it's interesting so it, it like old randy would have been contemplative about it because i'm very in my head a lot and i would and i like to think about things but this was more of felt Stunt intuition uh -huh. i just i felt that this was the right calling for me and so i started working with these things and to, to specifically answer your question you asked well what happened yes. to me that shifted my yes. perspective and so during a ceremony i closed my i was walking talking just like we are now but then i close my eyes and as soon as i close my eyes something fascinating happened that i never knew was a thing i and i was telling um michael about this at lunch um i closed my eyes and my sense of i like who whatever that thing is that i you refer to when i use the word i it stayed the same, mm. but that I retracted out of this mind body, body yeah. thing called Randy. Yes. And it, and it came outside of Randy and it went, Oh wow, I'm not Randy. But then it, 
left the solar system and then it left the universe and it looked around and it remembered something. It remembered that there's only one thing, which is loving energy that the entire physical universe is manifested from. And that this thing that I thought of was Randy, that is this eye is the eye of all that energy such that you as a consciousness and me as a consciousness are actually sharing the same consciousness. Yes. But it's in a pool of energy that's outside of what we can perceive every day. And that that energy chooses to experience what it's like to be a Randy. So it, it makes a Randy and it pops into Randy uh, like and has his Randy be its avatar and it wants to know what it's like to be a Paco. So it makes a Paco and it, and it sits into Paco and it's looking out through Paco's eyes and it's listening to Randy through Paco's ears. And when I kind of came out of that experience, I didn't know what to make of it. I was like, I'd never heard of this concept that the universe is just one thing. I'd never heard of this concept that consciousness is actually shared between people. And so what I did is I, I started Googling and I don't remember what search terms I used, but I very quickly found um, some ancient Eastern philosophies like Buddhism and, and some certain early Hindu traditions that are entirely based on this concept that the world is based on a, a loving conscious energy and that the world that we see as a physical universe is a very, very special type of illusion that comes out of this deeper energy. And that is something that interestingly enough, one can also approach from the scientific perspective. Yep. Cause I, I think I was mentioning that the, the, uh, the 2022 Nobel prize in physics, it was just awarded last October. It was awarded for experimental confirmation of this idea that the f entirety of the physical universe is actually running on a mathematical program that's kind of below our level of reality that we can't perceive. Mm -hmm. um, below or above? Well, either way, just yeah. out, outside, outside, of outside of our, outside the depth of our perception. Like yes, it's, it's, exactly. Yeah, it's like having a fourth dimension kind of. Exactly. And that you can approach this, this mystery of the universe that there's something making everything happen. You can approach that through scientific experiments. But you can also approach it a completely different way by going inside yourself yes. and transcending your own sense of self and investigating what is my consciousness. And that those two completely different avenues of exploration seem to lead us to the same place. Which is why when, when, when people um, need to have a breakthrough, they have to let go of all their limiting beliefs. Absolutely. Because... Like, like to your point, if there is that big pool of consciousness, energy that's abundant in love and everything else, it's the physical reality, the physical Paco that actually is preventing us from moving forward to the direction where we ought to be or ought to go. Yeah, well, more specifically to drill down on that idea, 
it's your identification yes. as a Paco that is the limitation. Yep. And that to transcend that limitation, you simply identify as the consciousness that's having Paco's experience rather than a Paco. And then there, there and then the fear comes in to prevent us from doing what we what we need to do, right? Exactly. Has has the has the uh, has both your practice synergized into into one benefiting the other? Has it happened already? Have you tried it? Have you bridged them together? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. Um, the answer is yes and no. And so from the broader context, I try very hard to actually keep my two practices very separate. Right. And that's because when somebody comes to me to have their life saved and they need radiation, it's a very technical Western medical thing. And most patients are wanting their cancer doctor to remain rigidly stuck in that mm -hmm. Western medical context. Not everybody, but a lot of patients don't want to hear about woo-woo things like energy being love and, and, and cancer coming from, you know, bad energies flowing. Yeah. It just, it doesn't make people feel comfortable when they've asked me to radiate their cancer. But where this other knowledge has kind of informed the way that I practice is it's helped me be um, much more patient mm. with my patients and much more um, compassionate to patients who um, are difficult. You know, a lot of times a cancer patient is scared. Yes. And a lot of times the way they, they manifest their fear is by being aggressive or belligerent or angry or not listening or not following directions. And when I was younger, I'd get frustrated by that. But now I just, I can, I see them as sacred spirits right. who are attached to an avatar that's struggling and that anything I'm feeling negative coming from them is just from their avatar not from their spirit. Yes, I, I, that makes perfect right? sense and to so me. And so then I just identify the person as the spirit and I just, I can discount. It doesn't become personal anymore. Exactly. I don't get attached to the way they're behaving. Yes. Now, with regard to um, your night practice, what type, of, what type of patient, client, would you be welcoming with regard to that? Yeah, it's, it's basically two populations of patients who are appropriate for psychedelic medicine work. And the most standard is uh, patients who need some type of psychotherapy. So talk therapy is an interesting thing because talk therapy, when you, when you find an in and you can mm -hmm. get into a patient's subconscious, yes. you can really, Match on. you can really, yeah. And, and mine deeply into that patient's psyche and find some injuries, find some traumas right. and pull them out to work with them and right. the patient can feel better. But the main problem with talk therapy is that the, the issues that brings a patient into a psychotherapist's office are subconscious issues. And so you can't just sit on your psychotherapist's couch and say, here's all the things in my subconscious that are bothering me mm. because it's hidden from you. And sometimes, uh, yeah, you're right because it, it has to be discovered by both of you. 
You right. by sharing and the other person by the right the the therapist by li- kind by of listening yeah, yeah. and and can, just like yeah. you you're you're a wonderful guide of a conversation that that's what a therapist does they guide the conversation to help elicit yes yes your memories of your subconscious traumas but you, you, the way our mind is designed part of our mind wants to protect us from those painful memories mm-hmm. so it makes it difficult to, for us to remember them well if you give somebody a little bit of ketamine while they're talking to their psychotherapist, what the ketamine does is it cuts those, um, that it, it, it puts a hole in the fence that ah, your subconscious has used to, to block that, off yes. these memories so that these subconscious memories can come to the forefront of your consciousness and you can say, oh, yeah, this happened to me, that happened, this is the way I reacted, and I, now that I think about it, I'm still carrying that negative reaction. It's amazing when, when, when a five-year-old has a trauma of something kind of mild. To the five-year-old, it's a huge deal, right? If you, if, yes. if, if you want the piece of birthday cake that got handed to the kid yeah. at the party next oh, to you. you're bringing that, yeah. Right? I mean, you, I want the yeah. one with the candle. <laughs> and, you know, little kids can cry over the silliest thing. And to us, it seems silly. But to the kid, that's a trauma in his yes. life. And if it doesn't get processed properly at the age of five, then you can create this psychological dysfunction that stays with you. And it doesn't... The, the, the Your five-year-old self is still stuck holding on to that injury. Very true. I agree. Right? And so what can happen is when you're 50 years old, you might make a bad decision that is actually influenced by that that. five-year-old energy stuck inside of you. Yeah. And with ketamine, a person can much more easily look inside themselves and identify these different parts that are frequently injured. And you can talk to these parts and talk to that five-year-old and you can say, hey, you know what? Paco was okay that day. He actually enjoyed his piece of cake that he got, and he's not five years old anymore. He, he's a, you know, successful band guy, and you know he has a successful podcast, and he's doing great. And that part can go, oh, you mean I, I don't have to play this role? I don't have to create this dysfunction in your in Paco's life. And anymore? this is going on while under the influence of ketamine, right? Exactly. Okay. And then when that little part inside of you that's causing some pain because it's reacting to an unresolved trauma when it realizes that trauma is no longer hurting you then it stops conducting its dysfunctional behavior question is when when um is it uh, when the experience subsides i wouldn't say when the high subsides but when the experience subsides is there a shift inside that with regard that's what i that's what i wanna i'm curious to know would it shift because you're putting a hole in the fence the opportunity is there because of the ketamine and the experience but when the experience subsides when that hole closes are are you able to fix what's inside what's behind the fence well not only do you fix what is behind the fence but that lesson that you learn by fixing stays with you and maybe the fence is not even there anymore because yeah that's a good analogy yeah over time the fence just sort of slowly goes there's nothing away. to protect right exactly you know I, I i imagine childhood traumas as things that um our protector mechanism creates a little closet for and then takes that memory and puts it in the closet yes. and then closes the door locks the door and then pushes a cabinet mm. and goes okay my work's done that memory's stuck in there and it's never going to bother me again 
But that's not what happens. These painful childhood traumas pop out at the worst time possible, like when we're stressed or under fear or threat. And that little five-year-old pops out and goes, I've got this. And then it it does something very dysfunctional. Um, but if you can kind of make peace with all those little parts that are causing these dysfunctions in your life, then your whole sense of well-being goes up a notch, like a big notch. How many times do you have to do? So this is more like kind of like therapy. Oh, it's not kind of like therapy. it is. We call it CAP, Cap. K-A-P, okay. ketamine assisted psychotherapy. Huh. And so the primary treatment isn't the ketamine. Okay. The primary treatment is the psychotherapy. Right. But assisted the, by assisted by um the ketamine, ketamine. It's, it's think of it like a nitrous booster on a street racer right you can go so fast with your engine but then you pump nitrous into the system and then you, you know, take right. over your opponent um adding ketamine is like a, a lubricant for right. your subconscious to start moving the gears in a way that your conscious mind can start working with it's a, it's a, so from going to therapy to actually being a psychotherapy therapist. Um, now, is this when you say ketamine assisted, it has to be done in front of you? Yeah. So there, uh, when there's most of my work, I do. And, and Dr. Bijou, I'm asking because I have friends who actually steam or cook their own. Uh, <laughs> Ketamine. So I, I, I just, I just have to differentiate because our listeners might go, I do that. <laughs> well, so you're getting into the nuances of kind of some of the medical legal issues. Yes, so please. Ketamine is a very, very safe medicine. Mm. Um, you know, it was proven on the battlefields of Vietnam mm. because back in, before Vietnam, before they had ketamine, medics only had morphine. Right. And morphine is an opioid and it can cause respiratory depression. I mean, we know we're in the middle of an opioid crisis. People are dying from overdosing. And if one medic had to take care of 12 injured soldiers, he he couldn't monitor 12 people at once who who we had to give morphine to, but he could give 12 people ketamine and like not worry about them and then spend his time on the most ill person. Um, But to answer your question, Within today's modern legal context, ketamine cannot be given by a psychotherapist because it's a controlled substance. Yes, it is. It, it's it's not under psychotherapy. It's under the umbrella of medical care. Mm-hmm. So that's where I come in. A doctor has a to doctor. give the um, injection. And I have a responsibility as the, as the treating physician yes. to be with that patient the entire time that they're altered by the ketamine. Thank you. Because, because that, that's, that's what I want to make clear, that this is not your leisure drug kind no, of thing. It's, no, it's the same chemical that people are using at parties and raves right. and whatnot, but it's just being used in a totally different context. Right. right? It's like a knife. A knife can kill you if you run into one in a bar fight, or a knife can save your life if a surgeon, if it's in a surgeon's hands, yes. and they're removing a cancer. True. So any tool can hurt you or help you, and I'm using ketamine to help people. Nice. So, so Doc, with 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 what with your your two practices, did you see yourself doing both? Did you see yourself? Did you project yourself the way you are now? when you decided to go to medical school? Am I making sense with what, with what I said? 
Well, are you like, asking if when I went to medical school, I would ever imagine that I would be where I am now? Doing what you're doing now? No, not in a thousand billion years. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I'm my... For you know you know what I'm saying, right? <laughs> well, for thir- but that's true in my personal life, too. And for 13 years, <laughs> I've been with my wonderful partner, Emily Williams. Shout out, Emily. Shout out to Emily. So she and I went to high school together. And I, I ended up marrying my ninth grade sweetheart, and I was with her for a very long time. And if you had asked me when I was in medical school, would I ever end up living with Emily Williams from the class below me? I would have said, there's no just no possible way. Like, no. Um, but here I am with her for 13 years. And so, you know, one of the things I've learned is that no matter how well you plan your life out, there, there are definitely some twists and turns along the way and the reason why i ask that not and again nothing is scripted with this you mentioned that you you wouldn't have thought it was possible and that was um that was high school randy thinking that but now looking back in hindsight 2020 things we deem impossible are possible Especially with what we were talking about, about trans- transcending, about energy and all. What's the takeaway, Doc? Let's talk about cancer. We thought it was a death sentence. Now it's not. Sometimes it's a nuisance. It has to be taken seriously. But your outlook, personally, as, as Randy Sharlock, what's the outlook now? Like you said, things I thought that was impossible when I was younger. Now I'm like, whoa, that's a possibility now. I'm not I'm not putting you in a position to give false hope to people who are watching who have cancer and all that. But but what's the message? Yeah. So th- this this is a perfect segue into the second half of a question you asked earlier. Yes. You asked, well what's like the typical patient? Yep. Who am I taking care of in this um, voodoo nighttime medical practice and i said that there were kind of two populations of patients one patient group we've talked about which are the folks who need psychotherapy well the second part which is the answer to your most recent question is that the other group of people that i work with are folks who do not need psychotherapy they're they're well adjusted in their life but one of the, the one of the things that the buddha recognized 2,500 years ago when he sat for a few days under the Bodhi tree, he realized that suffering is an unavoidable aspect of life. And it's something that I call NHC. NHC, okay. Normal human condition. Mm. No matter how happy you are, no matter how much money you have, no matter like every single checklist in the life that you want could be checked, but every single human still suffers. And so the question is, is there anything that I could teach somebody to minimize their daily suffering? And Minimize their daily suffering or increase the acceptance of the suffering they will inevitably... Well, okay, both. Okay. I mean, because what we're talking about here, um, just to yes. kind of clarify, yes. words can only give us a partial story. So any words that I choose, I could also tell you why those words are not right. Because yes. we're really just talking about analogies and, and metaphors here. But 
if a so to go back to this idea that the entire universe is made out of loving consciousness. Yeah. What I teach people, and this is extremely unintuitive to be able to just sort of process on your own, and it can take a psychedelic medicine to shift your conscious perspective to be able to absorb this this lesson. Mm. But if you stop identifying as a Paco and you change your notion of what you refer to when you use the word I, and you use I to refer to the loving consciousness of the universe that's seeing the world through Paco's eyes, that simple shift in, in your perspective of self can help you let go of all the suffering that Paco experiences because of the drama in Paco's life that, you know, here's a simple analogy. When you're playing a video game, you're playing Mario brothers. When Mario gets hurt or he dies, you, you don't start crying. You right. just put in another quarter. Yes. And your life is much more like a video game where your consciousness is playing Paco. Me. Yeah. Rather than Paco being a thing in and of itself. And again, this is a very, very non-intuitive, very difficult concept for people to grasp. And you can't grasp it just by being told it. You need hours and hours of reading and discussion and psychedelic experiences to change your perspective to kind of adopt this as a lifestyle. That's true. But once you once you change your identity from being a person to being a loving consciousness, your entire life experience as a human being changes for the better. Like when, when people say, Doc, some people would say, I've always been a victim. The reality could be, no. That's your avatar defining itself as... 100%. Being a and, victim. And, and that's exactly what changed for me when I had that first experience that I said I woke up from and I was cured, my depression was gone. What happened was I had a victim mentality. You know, I just had a loop in my head of spinning around all the bad things that had happened to me, all the unfair things, all the ways that I was a victim. And what a medicine ceremony helped me do was just look at a different part of my life and say, well, my kids are healthy. Right. You know, I have the opportunity to fly home and see them every other week. You know, my life, what, I wasn't in a foxhole in Iraq getting shot at. I wasn't in prison. You know, my life was pretty darn good. And all I had to do was just see my life through that different lens. Yes. And my depression went away. So, Doc, just now, now that I'm, I'm thinking about it, what's your take on deja vu? Deja vu is really interesting. So to kind of go along with the theme of the f of energy answering, yeah. yeah, both Western medical perspective and an energy perspective. Yes. The Western medical perspective is pretty simplistic. The idea is that deja vu is when your brain is processing a circumstance or an event before, um, well, let me say this differently. It's it's when your brain puts something into memory before it processes it. Then when you're processing it, it feels like it's something that you've 
known experience be- before, before right yeah. so it's really just to a western medical neuro- neurology perspective it's just a misfiling into a memory before you process it but from an energetic perspective i rarely feel with deja vu anymore but i actually <laughs> did recently and as it was happening what it seemed like to me is that two very similar but parallel universes were temporarily mixing so that I was seeing two different worlds at once and then the world that this form of my avatar stayed in kind of separated from the other one. And for the brief moment when these two universes are are mixing, that's to me what deja vu is and feels like. The, since you mentioned that, let's uh, let's go a little bit further. Is it safe to say you subscribe to the multiverse? I'd say it a little softer than that. I'd say that um, one of the respected interpretations of modern quantum theory mm. is that there are multiple universes that result from splitting of one universe same energy different avatars in different universes am i exactly okay exactly or maybe different perspectives of looking at the same whole which means i may die in this universe because of the choices i made in that life my avatar not me but my avatar but succeed in this specific universe and fail miserably in another universe is that absolutely and and that typically under normal circumstances these two universes are completely separate we don't have any way to access one another universe but if these two universes could merge together for a little bit almost like two bubbles coming together and you get that interface where they're shared that's to me feels like what's happening when i'm experiencing a deja vu Wow! Is it safe to say, if you're not into all of these things, just to go, I wouldn't say granular, but just to be more broad, gratitude really does help. Yeah, it's not more than help. It's like living a life of gratitude is the way to minimize the normal human condition of suffering. What do you say, Doc, before we land this? What am I... What... Not me, but I'll speak for me and the audience. From a day-to-day perspective, I journal, I walk, I meditate, it's helped. I've overcome challenges in my life just by a simple shift in lifestyle and perspective. But I'm not good at encouraging people to write thoughts on paper. I'm not good at having people come take a walk with me and all that. But you, you're you're the guy people go to. What can you tell me and tell others? What kind of lifestyle ritual change do we need to do? Just a little piece, piece of advice to make our lives better from your experience and perspective. Yeah, again, great question. Um, and the, the answer is remarkably simple. Spend 20 minutes a day, it's being quiet. If you want to use the word meditation, you can, but 10 minutes in the morning and 10 minutes in the evening, just that simple exercise of deciding to take 10 minutes to turn 
every alarm off to just shut your, put your phone on silent and to just sit eyes open or closed, you know, whatever, however you're comfortable and you don't have to sit in some yogic swami <laughs> position. You could lie down, just be comfortable, but just give yourself 10 minutes in the morning and 10 minutes at night for your brain to rest. And the, the technique that I like the most is to imagine that you're sitting by a river and anytime a thought comes up, you don't fight it. You don't try to say, I'm not going to think about that. Um, you just let that thought be, but you take it and visually put it in a little boat, a little toy boat that's going down this river oh. and just let that thought go away. And then your mind will be empty for two seconds. And then another thought will pop up. You just take that thought and you put it in a little boat and you just, just repeat that process for 10 minutes that you let your mind be silent. When a thought pops up, you just, you know, you just blow it away. And just doing that can help calm parts of your brain that otherwise can start steamrolling out of control and poking on you and causing you to suffer about things that are really immaterial. And so that's the answer to your question. 20 minutes of meditating or quiet time every day. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Randy Sharlock. If you want more, I'll put the link to Dr. Randy's website in the description below. Feel free to reach out to him. I'm pretty sure we've touched a heart. Please don't forget to pass and share along this episode and help us save a life.